Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another Gaudi Mitzpah's 22.com podcast on Podbean and uh, YouTube videos. Uh, I am Dr. Larry Chapp, as most of you know, and tonight I am very excited. I'm it is tonight. It's night here. I don't know when this is going to get posted, uh, but I was I was I, I have three very fine uh, Catholic uh, mothers online with me today. Uh, two of them are former students of mine. One is the wife of a friend of a friend who I have come now to be a friend with as well. Uh, friends with Father John Gribowicz, the co-owner of our farm. And I was reading an article not too long ago about the difficulties of raising children in our uh, as Catholic in our modern culture. And it was written by a mother. And I wish I could remember the article, but I can't. And I thought to myself, well, you know what? Uh, I write a lot about how toxic modern culture is to the Catholic faith. And yet one of the things I really don't write enough about is parenthood within that culture. And uh, specifically, I think, uh, being a mother, I know what it's like in common on what it was like to be a father raising a child. And actually, for uh, about four years, I raised my daughter as a single daddy. Uh, but still, I wanted to focus for some reason, some bird, Holy Spirit bird was chirping in my head to say, talk to mothers, talk to mothers. All right. So let's who we have here today. We have and and I'm no order of preference. I'm just according to my screen. I'm just going around the robin here. Uh, we have Amanda Conklin, uh, who was a student of mine. At, at, Amanda, raise your hand so everyone can see who I'm talking about in yeah. case the name isn't up. Amanda Conklin, uh, what year did you graduate from DeSales? 20, uh, 2009, <laughs> 2009. So yeah. And I retired from there in 2013. So yeah, you were a former student of mine and you are uh, theologically educated, theologically astute. And now you're married to Seth Conklin, who was also at DeSales university, very smart guy. And, uh, how many kids do you have? We have three, three kids. All right. Then we have Natalie Lelio. Oh, by the way, your maiden name was minor, Amanda minor. Yes. So, and now we have Natalie Lelio. Raise your hand, Natalie, otherwise known as Nat, who's married to Tom Lelio, also a student, former student in sales. And you graduated in 2008. Then what you just said, Nat. All right. And that Natalie's ma maiden name was Antrim. That's right. Right. Is that correct? Natalie Is Antrim. There, yeah. yeah. Oh, my Jeez, my memory. I'm maybe not as old as I That's thought. Really and you have yeah. five kids, Nat? Five? I have, yes, I have five. Mm -hmm. five children oh i should say amanda lives in new york state not in new york city new york state natalie now lives in florida down near into the west coast of florida right sarasota era sarasota. area yeah there we go and last but not least we have someone who is not a former student of maria marzen <laughs> maria marzen is there raise your hand maria wife of Paul Marzen, and Paul Marzen was a friend of uh, Father John Gribowicz, and that's how I initially came to know Paul, and then I got to know Maria, and uh, actually became very good friends with, with the Marzens through John, uh, and Maria, you have five kids, six kids? What? I have eight. Eight? Oh my God, I, I lost. I just missed a few, it's fine. I lost track somewhere along the way. You know, I, I do. Have, I do. I have a lot of friends who have like seven, eight, nine kids. Our pastor at our church, Father Bergman, has 10 kids. And I swear, I swear at some point when you have friends like that, I think it's about kid number six. You stop counting. Totally. You just say they have a lot of kids. Exactly. <laughs> you, you can't remember. So eight. My goodness. Yes. Eight kids. And you've um, 
and you've had some struggles too with the uh, health wise with some of them. So that's an important thing to talk about. So I want to, if you, if you feel comfortable anyway, talking about that, but um, anyway, I'm going to open with just a very, Oh, and what was your maiden name, Maria? It was John. That's right. It was Maria John. Mm-hmm. That's right. I don't know how I could have forgot that. I remembered Antrim and Con- uh, and Minor, but not John, because J- Gribwich told me that many, many times, actually. Uh, anyways, asking a very generic question here at the start. What are the primary challenges that you can identify uh, that you've experienced as a Catholic mother in today's world in trying to raise your children as Catholic? Some of you already have older children who are like teenagers. Some of you, like Amanda, your kids have not yet quite reached that milestone. So there might be some differences here in in emphases about what the challenges are. But I'm just going to go back in the same order that I started with the introduction. Is that okay, Amanda? You, do you mind starting? Sure. <laughs> and then we'll go from there. And the and you guys and and Maria and Nat, you can just sort of chime in whenever you want to if you have a question. So go ahead, Amanda, take it away. Yeah. So honestly, I think. It's hard being a mom in general, even just taking out the Catholic part to begin with in today's culture, because I think motherhood is still viewed sometimes as a burden in itself or, um, you know, something to put off to pursue other things. And so I think that in general makes it hard to be a mom. Um, But obviously the Catholic aspect makes it even harder. Mm -hmm. So. One of the things that immediately came to mind when you asked that question was um, the amount of screens and devices, and so (laughs) therefore information that our children have access to. Um, We're really blessed. Our children do go to uh, a private classical Catholic school. So thankfully, a lot of the other parents are of like minds with us and their kids don't have a thousand smartphone devices, etc. So we're not hearing a ton of you know, why can't I have that? Because all my friends have it. Because I think that is a huge um, difficulty navigating. My dad was uh, a New York State trooper in the computer crimes unit for many, many years. And this is even before we've gotten to the level we are now. Yeah. So I'm just aware of all of the garbage that's out there. And so that struggle of not wanting to bubble your children, but also wanting them to be children as long as possible and forming them so that they can navigate that when they are exposed yeah. to those things. So, Well, that's a huge topic, the topic of uh, all the various devices. And so we're going to, we will come back to that, but you also raised a good point, Amanda, which is that, uh, it's just tough being a, a parent and specifically a mother in general right now. Forget even right now the Catholic parts. Just being a mother, period, in today's culture is difficult. And I and 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 so the Catholic part just sort of compounds that. So let's save that question of divide. Did you have anything else you wanted to add before I go on to Natalie? I mean, it's just no, I'll, I'll play off okay. of whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Well, just well, yeah, exactly. That was the idea too. So take it away, Natalie Lelio. Same question, or you could rephrase the question if you think it's a stupid question and <laughs> ask your own question, but go ahead. 
Um, Amanda took a lot of what I was going to say, but I'm going to go in a different direction, talk about my own personal struggles with parenthood. I didn't anticipate the amount of mental anguish (laughs) it is being a parent and how that plays into like your mental health, even without that Catholic piece. And then seeing that part of like, oh, I have to raise my children in this faith and not letting that just fill you with fear and stress is another thing you have to do right among all the other things of parenting instead of it, it just seems like it's one of those things among other things because the culture is throwing this at you from every direction. And then you have this feeling that this Catholic, you know, the most important way of raising a family, the way to be raising your family is like among that chaos and it's not it's it's something completely separate in and of itself and trying to come back to that all the time knowing that that's the core of your family and that's the core of who you are um and it's always like a self-check you know it's always am i am i living out what i'm telling my children to do like are are we displaying these traditions are we living this out, uh, um, not just telling them what they should be doing or what they should believe, but actually living it out as parents. And um, like, are we praying together as spouses? Like, you know, you have to, you have to be living it out, especially when your kids reach that teenage year as they're toddlers and everything, it might be all fine until they reach that teenage year. And then they're, and you're trying to ingrain the faith in them and you see kind of where you fell short in all of that. Um, so being in this culture where everything's antithetical to to Catholicism, that's supposed to be like ingrained in the culture, you know, it's supposed to be what you live and breathe and smell and taste and all of that. And now it's just like, a, if you're into that, that's cool part of culture. And it was just never meant to be that way. So it makes life very, very difficult in raising children, especially when they reach the teenage years and they're like, well, I don't get anything out of church because yeah. everything is for entertainment. So I guess that's that's my main my main struggle is seeing it as something among a bunch of other things in the culture, of this, in the chaos, and really just coming back to that core and really passing oh, that on. Yeah, so much packed in there. Uh you know, I just I'm going to say just as a side note before we go to Maria, just be aware, you know, puberty makes young boys really stupid. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, having to- having gone through it myself and be, having been a young boy who was intellectually precocious and bookish and all those sorts of things, I can say with supreme confidence that when one reaches puberty, you don't give a damn about books. <laughs> All right. As a boy, at right. least, you know, uh, I did. That's a joke. Of course, I did continue, but they weren't the high priority on my list of priorities. No more, no more, no more. Once I hit puberty. And so I'm not being too self-disclosing here. I think this is almost a universal facet of, as I like to say, nature is extremely unkind to young boys in that regard. Uh, but the unkind to young women in other ways. But anyway, uh, I don't want to dominate the conversation. Uh, there is uh, Amanda brought up the issue of technology. You brought up the issue of, and I want to come back to that. You brought up the issue, Nat, too, of then just the sheer stress of being a mother. And so 
but before I go on to Maria, I just want to lay out some issues that we can talk about as we go forward. One of the things I think that as a man in particular, and for men listening to this, one of the things I don't think we completely fully appreciate and understand is what kind of changes, not just to a woman's body, but to her hormonal structure, to her emotional life that she then has to deal with as she's trying to raise children in the postpartum state. There are emotional issues that have to be dealt with. And I wonder to what extent maybe our church deals with those properly or extensively enough, takes them enough into consideration. So we're going to come back to that. But last but not least, the one with the most kids here, Maria, uh, eight kids. Same question, Maria, and you can rephrase that however you want, but go ahead. I guess my first take is a super practical one of we've all know the phrase of, you know, it takes a village, you know, uh, right. to, to raise to raise a kid and we don't have a village. So what do you, you know, I'm, I'm talking super practical. You walk outside your front door. Um, it's a ghost town, at least in my I just live in suburbia, uh, Lehigh Valley, and there no one's home. Um, anyone who has young children, they are in daycare um, or, you know, I don't see them. Uh, so on a daily basis, you as a mom, you feel very isolated and it, you kind of uh, that becomes talking about emotions that messes with your emotions when you don't have that village to help you raise your kid where you can just we don't have multi generations living with us. You know, we don't have um, just the help that almost the entire existence of motherhood has had. Um, and so I agree with both Amanda and, and Nat, like we we're kind of at a disadvantage from the get-go trying to figure this all out. Um, just being on an Island, um, being by ourselves and that feeling of, I, mean, yeah, I would say it's yeah. consensus among moms that they would say, they just kind of feel like they're trying to find people. And as far as the Catholic goes, you know, let's think about, I can only speak about my you know, grandparents. My mom went to the school two blocks from their house, the Catholic school that was attached to the Catholic church that they did all of their sports activities and all of their extracurriculars with all within walking distance. Um, you walked to the park uh, that was 10 minutes yeah. away. My mom said she would take her you know, five-year-old brother with her um, to the park and they'd come back when it was dinner time. We're there, you know, thinking we have to entertain our children from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. And it just wasn't meant to be that way. Yeah, and you can't let them go to the park because they might get abducted. Like you can't. It's gotten play out violent in their front yard. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh, that is so true. Um, once again, I don't want to dominate at all, but there is a generational divide that I even experienced, such as that when I I'm, I'm a baby boomer, tail end, born in '58. And when I was growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska in the 60s, as just, you know, between the ages of 50, you know, one and 10, there were kids everywhere. And in the summertime, my mom would simply open the front door and all four of us boys, kids, not boys, all four of us kids would she go go out and play. And she knew she was free, really, until lunchtime when we would come back in for lunch. And we would ride our bikes down a mile to the grocery store. Or we'd play. There was a big park across the street from us, or we'd just play football on the street or uh, vacant lots and so on. My mom didn't care. 
No, and because she had all and every other mom in the neighborhood was they were all stay at home moms and it was all the same way. And they would get together and have coffee during the day. And there was a real community there for them. There was no isolation. And then I became a parent. And so this was in the 80s and then into the 90s. And no way, no way, no way would I have ever let my daughter go out and even play on the front yard by herself without being me watching her constantly to make sure that some jerk didn't come by and and scoop her up. Exactly. So that, you know, that's, and that, that fear factor, right. That only adds to the sense of isolation. Right. Right. Because all of a sudden you, you feel like you have to create a fortress, a bubble. And, and, and that only it sort of increases worse when your hormones are all wacky, like you said. Okay. Well, let's come back to that then, since you raised the topic and you can lead off Amanda. I'm a man. I don't get it. After my, you know, one and only child was born. I just, I suffered from lack of sleep. That was all because I was that generation of men that was in there when the child was being born, you know, all right, dear, do your breathing and all that kind of stuff. Right. And uh, all I was just lack of sleep. Okay. One night of sleep and I was fine again. Uh, But you know, that's not the case with women. So go ahead, Amanda, describe your experience. Well, Natalie and I have actually been in contact a lot lately because we both experienced Um, just very intense postpartum anxiety, depression. Um, And a lot of people think of that as happening, you know, almost immediately after birth. For me, it was like a year and a half after I'd had my Mm. daughter. And um, I had actually stopped breastfeeding. And I think that kind of influenced. Oh, that did it. See, I've learned something because I would have just assumed that it was something that happened within a few weeks of giving birth. Well, and my doctor, even my primary, when I went to him, just because it had been so long, was sort of like, well, you have generalized anxiety. Um, And so. (laughs) Well, at least it has a name, right, Amanda? (laughs) Or like, you're tired because you're a mom. And it's (laughs) Um, so I had to take it upon myself, contacting Natalie, other people that I know to find someone um, who specialized in hormones. And even then, I'm still on this roller coaster of um, figuring out how to balance things. And we're also living in a culture where even our own female doctors don't know about our hormonal systems because really, Really? because yeah, because everyone's put on birth control and that's the solution to everything. So you'll go go to the OBGYN and they literally won't know how to tell you how your own body should function (laughs) because it's the birth control bandaid for everything. And so it's very, very difficult to navigate that, especially where I live is like super rural. There's not a lot of specialty doctors or naturopaths. Um, and so it's been a whole roller coaster. And so you're what you're, while you're raising so, kids. <laughs> yeah. So what you're raising then is actually then an issue with regard to the postpartum stuff that is going to be more Catholic specific with regard to devout Catholic women who don't, con- who don't contracept with, with the, you know, the hormonal pill right. that doctors and even female doctors are not going to know what to do with you other than to say, here, take this pill. They don't even know what to test half of them. They'll test your basic panels or whatever and say, well, everything looks yeah. fine. So we don't oh, know yeah. what's wrong with you. <laughs> We've all had that. And you know what? And that's something even men can relate to. We've all had that experience of feeling like total garbage. 
I, I once went a year with a mystery illness and you go to the doctor and well, well, your blood work is fine. It's okay. Okay. No problem. You know? And, uh, well, that's your opinion. But anyway, enough of that. Let's go to Natalie. And then I want to come to Maria all talking about th this, uh, same issue, or if you want to go into something else, it's fine too. But I'm, I think this is a really important issue to sort of focus on right now. The issue of, and, and whether or not our church communities, not just the medical community, but the church mm -hmm. community is supportive enough in this domain as well. Go ahead, Natalie. Hmm, that's interesting. The church piece and the whole. Yeah, I, I started I start when we moved down here, I started a mom's group. Um, well, Tom started it for me. Um, I was in the midst of moving. I had a horrible pregnancy where I felt wildly depressed. I was very sick and trying to meet new people down here, moving from Pennsylvania to Florida. So he started a mom's group and there was just so much interest in it. We were blessed with a volunteer. We, there's a lot of old people down here and a lot of old people that have grandchildren in Northern states or whatever. So they like the opportunity to watch the kids and while the moms meet separately. And um, so it, it was, it went really, really well. And I feel like that's super important because when you're dealing with all these crazy hormone things, it's very really, um, it feels very lonely and like it's not real. Like if you feel like you are imagining it, it is just very hard to explain, but it, it seems like an imaginary thing. But when you talk to other moms, it's like this universal understanding. Maybe they don't deal with postpartum depression to the point where it's a clinical thing or generalized anxieties that has a fancy name all of a sudden, but every mom has felt that loneliness, that darkness and anxiousness of raising a human life and knowing that you are responsible <clears throat> for this life and being able, like what Maria was saying, um, not having that village, um, I think in church, you need young mother to even not just the young mothers, but the wisdom of mothers from every age of raising children is really important too. This group was just young mothers, but I was part of another mother's group where we had yeah. some older people in it. And that was just mind blowing to see the wisdom of how, as you grow in age, the things that you learn and, um, so I think that's super important. Uh, I and I don't too. think, I think it's extremely lacking in, in the Catholic church because nobody that's a mom who just had a baby who's experiencing postpartum depression. If it's not at your church is going to wake up one day and be like, I think I'm going to start a mom's group. You know, you're, you're too in the hole at that point. It needs to be established already. Oh yeah. Um, you know, cause I can, I, you know, one of the things that men can perhaps sympathize with here is men too can suffer from depression. It might be of a different kind, but it's not as if we cannot in a sense sympathize with, with a woman when she says I'm undergoing depression. And I know having been depressed at times in my own life, that you do reach a certain state of depression where you, a certain paralysis sets in where you, even if remedies are offered to you, you say, well, I don't really even care enough to care enough. So you're asking me to care about caring and I don't even care about caring about caring. So just take your solution and shove it because I don't give a damn. I mean, you, it engenders a deep and powerful cynicism 
that can really then create this downward vortex uh, of darkness. But anyway, and I want and I want to come back to also, in some sense, sometimes the postpartum changes can be permanent, both physiologically and emotionally. I know two women, one woman I woman I know who, after giving birth to her second child, developed epilepsy, and it it was permanent. I know another woman who, after her second child, developed lupus, and it it's she still has it. And so I can only imagine that there might also be emotional changes that might be semi-permanent and that and, and personality changes that can be permanent. And that has to be, I think, dealt with and taken into consideration. But anyway, lost. Once again, poor Maria, I should have next hey, next listen. next round of questions. Maybe I'll start with you. Maybe we'll do that. But anyway, go ahead, Maria. After my third, uh, I experienced what Natalie described as you're just this unreal, not under, didn't seem like I've never experienced anxiety before uh, or what I thought was anxiety. So after that, I did feel paralyzed. Um, I had actually insomnia uh, and didn't sleep for seven days um, watching my baby sleep next to me at night. You know, it was very traumatic. And so I you know, went to the doctor, did all the things, um, started with a therapist, started with some medication. Uh, and that really was the beginning of my, I would say, um, my mental healing, my healing uh, that I feel like is continual, but was the start of something really important. And so it, I'm still, I still go to therapy. Uh, I still take medication to help with my anxiety. Um, I haven't stopped since my third. I'm on number, you know, eight. And, um, it's, it, they told, you know, they tell you after, oh, it, with every, you know, next pregnancy, it'll get worse and worse and worse and worse, um, where I really did not want that to happen. So I made sure I was doing everything I could and just like the, uh, you know, the other, Nat and the, well, um, Natalie and Amanda have said that, um, the more people you would say, oh yeah, I had postpartum anxiety, almost every mom can chime in and say, oh yeah, me too. Uh, and, you know, I would say things are much better now as far as awareness uh, amongst moms. Um, the medical world is really far behind, but us moms, we, we kind of look out for each other now, at least that's my experience. I feel very called to check in on a new mom. You know, I think what's important to understand too is when you're going through your prenatal care, you're seeing your doctor monthly, then um, bi-week or monthly, and then every two weeks, then every once a week, and then every day, kind of, it depends as you get closer to your due date, depending on your issues. Once you leave the hospital, two days after you give birth, you don't see your OB for six weeks. It, you're just, here's wow. your baby, yeah. go home and yeah. see go in six and... weeks to see if you're healed up. Yeah. And, and if there's a major problem, go to the emergency room. Yep. Yeah. Right. So it, there's this gap, this massive gap of six weeks when most of the most horrific, usually the most horrific thoughts of a new mom begin in those days and weeks. Um, and is the first baby worse, Maria, and then it gets better or does it I, I can't remember what what you said does it get Opposite. worse with it, they it, say worse. it got worse with worse. each one that that's what you said right they it got say, worse with each say. one right okay that's is that true say. for each one of the others too amanda and that that it got worse with my each body baby? like fell apart after my third i now have 
insulin resistance. I have Hashimoto's. Like I have all these weird autoimmune things. What where, is Hashimoto's? I've heard that name, but I don't know um, what it is. It's basically when your thyroid creates antibodies. So your body That's thinks right. it's a foreign object and tries to attack it. <laughs> so to me. And Natalie tried to murder Tom. I know that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't mean to, I just, I don't know why that popped into my head. Uh, but uh, anyway, so, well, that's right. So, okay. So you developed like permanent physiological problems, like, like I said uh, before, but I want to come back to Maria too. Now, Maria, you, you can, you're free to not share anything at all or something, but you also have had children with some uh, major health issues. And I just remember that I had a sister and God forbid that this would happen to any of your children, but I did have a sister that eventually died. She was born with a heart defect. And I just remember she was the fifth of five. And my mother, I didn't know it at the time as a child, but looking back and then talking to my mom now, who's 87, she was undergoing postpartum depression and anxiety, may big anxiety. Anxiety was her thing more than depression. Uh, and then she had this child that was extremely sick. Uh, who lived for five years before having surgery and dying. But I just wish that as a boy, I had had a greater appreciation for what my own mother was probably going through of trying to raise four other kids, deal with a husband who could be difficult. Uh, my dad's a great guy. Don't be wrong. But, you know, any marriage is difficult. And a sick child on top of that, dealing with then emotional anxiety issues. So, if maybe you could, if you wanted to, if not, that's fine. Talk about what's it like being, you know, it's hard enough when you've got children that are healthy, but then when you have children who aren't, that adds another complication, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm an open book. So well, there's oh, no, okay. uh, there's no secrets. Yeah. We uh, didn't talk about this beforehand, so I didn't want to invade your privacy. So no, go ahead. No. So I kind of, uh, the reason why I said earlier that after my third started the journey of like the kind of healing of lots of stuff, mentally anxiety and all that kind of stuff is because I really do think that the, all of the things that have happened since learning about my anxiety has prepared me to deal with um, what I've had to deal with the past year and a half. There were just, it what seemed like this is going to be the worst thing that's going to ever happen in my life. When my um, second daughter um, was three years old. She was airlifted to CHOP. Her kidneys were shutting down. She had this rare pneumonia thing happening. We were in CHOP for, you know, 20 days, touch and go type of situation. I thought that was going to be the worst thing of my life. She Chop healed Children's out. Hospital of Pennsylvania? Is that, is that... Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. She recovered perfectly. She has no lasting effects from that, thinking that was going to be the worst of it. Um, and, you know, this a year and a half ago, my son, uh, he was seven years old at the time. Jude was having headaches, started vomiting after cross country practice. We kept taking him in. The doctors kept saying, oh, you know, he needs to rest more. He needs to drink more water. It's hot. Uh, and then eventually within the ER, a couple of times we've had to take him. Um, eventually they did find that he had um, a brain tumor um, and he has uh, a brain cancer known as medulloblastoma. And so you know, you think really it doesn't, I don't know how much we're like, you know, you think, okay, well, this is probably the worst thing that could happen to a mom. Um, but 
going through it, you know, I'll just give the happy ending. We just, um, today, uh, Jude got his port removed, um, because he is officially in remission. Um, so that's kind of amazing that this coincides with the listeners don't know, you know, when I was in Rome, I'm kind of tearing up a little bit. I was, I prayed at Paul's request, your husband's request at the tomb of John Paul for him. And, uh, Let's let's say it was John Paul's intercession. Uh, absolutely. Dorothy Day, um, John Paul, it, we have been so many. And I know, Larry, you, you know, you and Carrie every day in your prayer in your little chapel, um, hmm. adding his name to uh, to to your prayer, uh, your midday prayers has meant so much to us. But um, so having that happy ending, uh, knowing that, but when you, what you go through as a parent, um, brain surgery, um, hearing the words, you know, radiation therapy, your family's going to have to live apart for Mm -hmm. six weeks as your child is in one, you know, city or the rest of you are in another, um, unexpectedly getting pregnant, um, (laughs) three months into, treatment obviously we all know how pregnancy happens but uh the uh method of natural family planning i was using uh was accurate but i was certain that i knew better uh did not (laughs) (laughs) but uh so you know getting pregnant thinking this is what are people going to think just going through these emotions and then the day in and day out uh chemo therapy routines and the, you know, throwing up and the, you know, being a mom. Yeah. I was homeschooling all the kids at the time. And this just, God is just so good because I listened, I was listening to a podcast by her name is Bonnie Landry. If you homeschool your kids, you have to look up her podcast, um, make joy normal. And she really goes through and she said, you know what? There was a time in my life where I, she shared a story about how she almost died And there was a year, almost a half of a year where all she did for homeschooling was read to them. Um, And they all turned out just fine. And so as this, because it was just at the start of the school year, he was diagnosed September 12th. So we were right at the start and I just thought, I mean, what else can I do this year? And so we just read that year for school um, together, not every day. And they did some math, they did some writing. Um, but I didn't stress over school. That was a huge thing not to stress over. That was a huge gift not to have to worry about school uh, for that year. And uh, just it, it, the, the support from so many around and realizing that suffering is something that everyone has in common and thinking that this was the worst thing that could ever happen to any mom. That's not true. Um, there being a part of this cancer community I realized that um, we are the lucky ones that we get to have Jude in our daily lives. And so many of these families don't get that. And, um, you know, it was an eye opener. So understanding that because our suffering was kind of on our sleeves day in and day out, my son, you know, God wasn't like, Maria can handle this. We're just going to dump this on her, you know, and God, I'll take, you know, he'll take care of the right. He does. That's not how this works. Right. It's, we all have suffering. Um, he didn't choose me to be the mom of Jude to have cancer. He allowed me to be the mom of Jude. He's bought, I, I am, he's not mine. Um, you know, he's Jews is the Lord's. 
first. And we, we, we say that as moms, but to truly go to that place in my heart of like, you know, laying him down at the altar and just being like, nah, I, I believe you, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah. here we are. So we have a happy ending, uh, but so many don't. Um, but I think the key takeaway is that every mom suffers um, and our suffering is what we can use to um, make us better moms. Yeah, they do. We do all suffer. And before we move on, I will say you're, you're so right. Maria. That was so moving. And I am very happy to hear about Jude um, because not all ha outcomes are happy ones. And in the case of my own family, my mother, it was not a happy outcome at all. And, uh, you know, I remember, I mean, and that's a pain, you know, none of us have had to go through it, thank God, but it, but we can imagine it and we can imagine that it would a pain, would be a pain to lose a child that would not heal. And I remember that many, many, many years after my sister died, she died in 1972, my own daughter was born in 1988 and my mother visited her for like a year after we had moved back to New Jersey for me to get my PhD. So my daughter was about a year old, it's 1989. My mother came in and my daughter looked shockingly like my sister when she was that age. My mother saw my daughter and just basically fell into a heap of, you know, emotion on the floor and that took hours to sort of overcome because wow. it immediately ripped open a wound that just never heals never heals and moms also don't often take time to grieve or take care of themselves in that situation because yes. you're constantly worried that your issues are going to affect your children mm -hmm. so Maria, my mom had four other kids she had to raise she had to keep going she yeah. had to soldier on she had to soldier on you know and even with even absent death even just dealing with a sick child you know nobody knows what's really going on behind the scenes. And yet you have, to, including some of your other children. And so you have to soldier on. So along those lines, okay. So you, obviously I don't think Amanda and Nat, either one of you have had a child quite as ill as uh, Jude has, as was, but I'm sure you've had to deal with, you know, sick children, uh, sometimes very sick children. So maybe you could talk about that. And, but then I want to move on to, I want to come back to the technology thing. Uh, and I want to come back into the church thing, how the church, but I also then want to come back to your own faith lives and what the specific difference is that the faith has made in, in, in your, uh, I'm not so interested in uh, how's that, how's my faith made me a better mother? I don't give a damn about that because uh, that's going to be unique to each person in some ways. I'm more interested in how your faith has changed because of this deepened uh, what it's done for your faith life and well of course how the faith has helped you to cope yes but more how it also has, has deepened but anyway th that's a lot tossed out there uh, i want to come back first though to the to the like the technology thing that we started with here what's what's the answer to this i mean seriously i said this uh, you can you can fight this only so long and you can shut off your TV set and you can shut off the interwebs and you can take the smartphones away. You can shut all that, but you can't shut off your culture. At some point, your children are going to gain access to the culture via the digital 
world, the virtual world and so on. So I don't have a clue what to do about that. Maybe you guys do. So let's start with Amanda and then go around. What I mean, you're you're what's your oldest child right now? Three, four, five. She's 10. 10. No, oh, that means I'm really old. Damn you. <laughs> yeah, we have I don't, a I, 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 damn it. It just seems like yesterday. She, oh, my God. You're telling me. No, oh, for crying out yeah. loud. Okay. So, okay. All right. So you're up in it now. You're about, you're about to hit it. Okay. Oh yeah. So, so, okay. So what about this technology thing? And then we'll go to Nat and then up to Maria. So um, the biggest thing, first of all, that just clicked off in my mind is we have always tried to be very open with our children, have conversations with them, um, talk about um, good pictures, bad pictures, um, even from a pretty young age in an age appropriate way. Um, I think part of that was, like I said, my dad's line of work growing up. Um, I've known the dangers and I, you know, mm -hmm. know how early children are exposed to like pornography and things like that. And so we've always had age appropriate conversations with our kids. Um, I love my parents dearly. Obviously, they did a great job raising me, I'd like to say, but both me and Seth. I think that's it. debatable, Amanda. Come on. <laughs> I, I don't want them to watch this and be like, she's saying we're terrible <laughs> parents. <laughs> but yeah. we we even wanted to be more open with our children, even than our parents were with us. Right. And so, I mean, Seth, just recently, we actually, I know it seems like a bit young, maybe to some people that we've had this, a basic sex talk with our kids at nine and 10. Um. But it was coming up. There were questions that were happening. And so we had a basic um, sex talk. And afterwards, we were like, thank God that was the Holy Spirit, because we had no idea how we were going to approach this. We had talked about, like, we know it's coming. How do we, is there a book somewhere? Like, we know. These <laughs> how, how do you say just enough and not too much? And it was such a Holy Spirit moment. And one of the main things that stands out to me is that at the very end of the conversation, Seth said to our children, I want you to promise me that if you have any questions about this, you will come to mom and dad. You will not search the internet for it because there are things out there that could hurt your heart. And daddy saw things that hurt his heart at a very young age. So we, you will never get in trouble. We want you right. to ask us questions. And they were very attentive. And of course, you know, that led to that night and the night after just weird questions. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but that I think is honestly one of the biggest things you can do, because like you said, you're they're inevitably eventually at some point going to be exposed to the culture. We want yeah. them to be children as long as possible, but you also don't want them to just be totally blindsided when it happens and to create that relationship that they will come to you, hopefully, when yeah. they see these things or have questions, I think is probably the main thing. And we are certainly not perfect at that. But and I think, too, and I would add to that, um, and I think I was somewhat successful with this with my own daughter. It's often said that a parent should not try to be their child's friend. Uh, and that's true because you need to be a parent first. And that sometimes means setting down the law and all that. But it's also true that setting down the law, so to speak, can come to be seen as simply an extrinsic oppression on the child, especially as they move into adolescence. If the child does not have a strong emotional friendship with their parent, you know, 
I often see like, I think it's more common with mothers and daughters than fathers and sons, but sometimes with fathers and sons too, where as you mature into adults, you really do become you, you, like my daughter, my, my, my daughter is really good friends with her mother. And, um, my sister is like chums with my mom. Uh, and, and I think therefore it is important to develop a kind of parental friendship. Let's put it that way with your children so that they do like a good friend feel like they could tell you anything. And, and I think that's terribly important. But anyway, I just thought that I would interject that as a, as a and daddy it's really hard to do too, to balance. That's really hard to do. It's a human skill that can't necessarily be taught where you have to walk this fine line between being a parent, but also then letting the child know, lowering the barrier that you're a person too. All right. That you, you're, you're a person, you're a human being. You're not an automaton. You're not this cardboard cutout called mommy, all right? that you have feelings and wounds and you've gone through all the same things that they've gone through and they can talk to you about this stuff. And, and I think that's a terribly, and I think that in generations and generations ago, this was not always so true. Uh, but I think we have a unique opportunity today to be those kinds of parents. But anyway, I'm I'm dominating again. Natalie, you haven't spoken in a long time. I'm sorry about that. It's your turn. No, it reminded me of when my, with my daughters, sometimes they're very, very chatty. I think as a lot of little daughters are. And sometimes I just don't have the mental stamina to engage in conversation and pointless questions. So I have to say to them, Mm -hmm. mommy is just I am so tired and I I just I need you to stop asking me questions right now like I need you to respect my mm -hmm. time like and they've come to realize that I'm not good at hiding my emotions from them I've cried in front of them and you know it's interesting because I don't remember my mom crying in front of me ever um and I think in the past, like you said, there was this kind of, you had to pretend it was all okay, or I, I don't know, but they've seen me come apart quite a few times and they've really developed a lot of empathy um, that I've seen. And um, even with me, just uh, seeing like, mom's a human too, and she really needs us to pull our weight here and cleaning up after ourselves. Um, we're still working on that as all parents are. Um, but I just wanted to kind of add that in when you said that, it kind yeah. of, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. But also with the screen stuff, it's, you have the dangerous things, like obviously pornography and all those very, very dangerous rabbit holes they can get sucked into on the internet. But you also have things that are, that seem okay and seem fine, but really there's like a deeper, I don't, there's like a deeper harm. Like, um, for example, the stupid YouTube and all of these different content creators that create, like there's this whole channel where little girls play with Barbie dolls and the girls want to watch other kids play Barbies on a screen or, um, <laughs> really? you know, oh my you God. Got, oh yeah. And you have like boys that, uh, like the cool guys, like I'm thinking of like do perfect, which is like harmless, to an extent, but you're, you're it, it's like you're not being present in your own life anymore. Just so the viewers they're, know, they're you have teen, you have you have a teenage boy. 
Yeah, I have a, my oldest is 14. I have three boys right. and they're the oldest. Yeah. The girl's the youngest. The oldest yeah. girl is, is so you have teen old, so. is do you have any other teenage? You have three boys, but are they how many uh, of them are teenagers? teenagers? I have a 14 and 13 year olds. So they're young okay. teenagers. They're so you're really dealing with this technology thing right now. Big time, right? Yeah, but I feel like I have been. I feel like I have been even since like my girls. I'm struggling with that, too, because they will watch these little girls go to their gymnastic classes and they have these perfect families that live in these perfect houses and they're watching this and being entertained by this and think that this is how their life maybe should be. So like it, it kind of pulls them out of the God-given world that they were put into and it kind of wastes their time, like of being who they're created to be in a sense. So I always say to them when they're, I'm, I'm like, no YouTube, live your own life. Like I'm always telling them like, live your own life. Um, this is your life. Um, so, but you know, so I could see as an adult getting sucked into some of those content creators, um, too, as, as well as an escape from, from there's the two things. Yeah. Two things to worry about. It's and we'll go to Maria. Uh, it's the content. Yeah. You've got things like pornography or, you know, violent things or just, you know, <laughs> girls watching other girls play with Barbies whatever there's the content to be worried about but there's also you know the old marshall McLuhan thing the medium is the message and the fact is it's a medium and i say this in full recognition that it affects me as much time as i spend now as a 65 year old adult on the internet i sense it in myself you become far more passive as as a thinker as a person as a learner and and you stop having ambitions you stop having a drive to do something in the real world as you live entirely in this screen and so do, uh, you know, we could come back and talk about you know does this have a crippling effect on our children's ambitions in life does it make them overly passive watchers and viewers and moviegoers and not active participants in in you know doing something interesting with their lives I find that that's that's an interesting question to me. But hey, Maria. Yeah, I think. <clears throat> how old is your oldest, Maria? I think this 13. is important. Okay, yeah, my so. oldest daughter's 13 and then 11 and nine, three girls and then mixed up towards the bottom. But um, it's kind of a new thing for me, um, the technology thing, um, because they just weren't in like, uh, of course, TV and stuff, but they just weren't really interested in the whole texting world and all that kind of stuff. And I really have just asked, I just asked my people, families I look up to, um, I kind of just get their input. Um, they've gone through it. Uh, and my neighbor across the street has 11 kids and she, uh, her oldest is 22 and her youngest is three. So I gain a lot of knowledge from her and what's worked for her and what hasn't worked for her. And basically her message has always been to me, each kid is different. Uh, and you really just, you know, authentic authenticity. We know our kids can see through us, you know, um, when we're trying to fake it uh, or trying to be the preachy mom um, or the preachy dad, do we think we're supposed to do and say, oh, screens are bad or this, or, you know, I, I think it's each kid is different uh, handling it, but the I just think with kids, it always goes back to me with relationship first um at the end of the day when I take a step back and I say did I what is my relationship like with each of my children because if it's not good 
then their their relationship with the internet i don't i, I don't and i don't know yeah you know they're she's a fresh teenager but i just would like to think if i don't really give a lot of time and attention to to her you know and just talk about technology as we go uh, my husband and i how we struggle with you know like carrying our brick around with us like it's our ball and chain you know we joke about it but uh, we said to our daughter the other day hey do you think it's a good idea if we would set a boundary she hasn't we have a family ipad she's been texting her just two or three friends or something she has numbers mm -hmm. of and we said hey do you think it's a good idea if we set a, a hour time limit that you have to text these three people um and she said well what's your time limit like not and not in a bratty way. She just wanted to know what my time <laughs> limit as a mom was. And I was just like, Jesus, a whiz, you know, like I don't even want to know how many hours I look at this. Yeah. Screen. Yeah. Um, because it's bad. Yeah, it is. It's <laughs> I'm 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 guilty as charged. You know, I I I'm you know uh, even during this interview, my little phone here keeps lighting up with right. someone you know 800 people texting me and emailing me and beep at least i have it on silent mode but it's like geez who the hell wants to talk to me now i'm all curious like hmm. and i guarantee you it's going to be a bunch of people i really don't care that they texted me or emailed me and, and yet there it is you know it's glaring up at me and i'm an adult i can't even imagine for right. a child right you know the challenges that 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 creates and the technology uh, and, changes so fast, you, you know. Yeah, so, I don't, I can't keep up with it. I just went on Twitter today. I got, I, I signed up for Twitter today, X as they call it now, because I've, mm -hmm. Carrie doesn't know this yet because she, for, she forbid me to be on Twitter for years and years. Uh, but I just said, oh, to heck with it the other day. I feel left out. And, <laughs> and so, and that, that's the point. That's why I brought this up. Kids like to belong, right? right? Especially teenagers. So there's a sense if a parent starts setting limits, the, the child feels, well, I'm now left out because this is where the world is. This is where the world exists. And even you, mom, and even you, dad, are on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter. You know, so don't tell me that this is not where people are actually meeting today. So what you're telling me, I can't do this. And so what, what do you, I mean, Amanda, what are you going to do when your 10 year old says, mom, assuming like Twitter's still around in five years, I want to be on Twitter. What are you going to tell her? It depends on if Elon still is running it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I probably will use my <laughs> own struggles with technology and things like that as again having that relationship with her to share the times that it has not been so wonderful um, and we've done a little bit of that already they've they haven't pressed super hard because we've basically told them they're never getting yeah. a phone until they go to college and they go to and you guys go to the classical school route so um yeah but there are there are parents whose kids you know do have you know ipads and have like kids yeah yeah that's see that's the trouble right there you can have all the right thing. And then your kid goes to school and half the other kids in class from even good parents, good homes, blah, 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 have iPads and iPhones and I this and I that and blah, blah. Nat, what does does your oldest have a smartphone or an iPad that is all his own? 
He does. Um, we have heavy duty like filtering and things. Yeah, and yeah. Sent to us if certain things are said, or he knows that we can take it at any time and read any messages. We tell him there's no like secret things on your phone. Like we can look through it, and we have a way of like reading through deleted things and all that. Um, so it's, but you know, it's still. You know, what's interesting you're asking about my oldest is I had a conversation with him about how, you know, you would go to school, you would be with your friends all day, and then you would go home and you had a break. But today there, there's just no break. There's constant communication, constant pictures, and they don't get to that reset of, okay, I'm out of so-and-so's life because I went home for the school day. Like they're, they're just completely absorbed with yeah. this. and. He even said to me, he feels he like longs for what I grew up with, not even knowing what I grew up with. Like he just sees mm. through it. And I find that interesting. He's a very mm. old soul wise kid, um, but he just knows like, yeah, he uses it and he's like completely in the culture mm. or whatever, but knows the dangers of it. And we talk all the time about it, but he, he has a sadness in him. Of, okay. Yeah. I'll never know yeah. what it's like not to grow up with this in my face all oh, the time, man. This is so powerful. I read an article last week. I wish I could remember where, or someplace somewhere, the elementary school banned uh, smartphones, iPads, all that stuff. Nobody could have it. It's, Part of the reason why kids want it, as I just said, is because they want to feel like they belong, that they're not excluded from the socialization that is going on via texting and social media. So when the school banned it and nobody had it, then all of a sudden the kids, the kids felt liberated. All of a sudden the kids were happier. The kids were glad, actually, that they didn't have all of that electronic garbage yoked around their necks. You know, so I'm wondering if there isn't some grass growing through the cracks in this sidewalk, if there isn't some hope out there, not that technology is all evil or bad, but, you know, for the listeners and the viewers out there, you know, and they're, they're listening to this and they're wondering, okay, this is all well and good. They were in a conversation about how hard it is to raise kids today in the techno world. I'm, I'm just wondering if the solution isn't outside of the hands of parents. And this is where I think the church could come in and do a better job where like a Catholic school would say, I mean, stupid Catholic schools don't even get me started on dumb as crap Catholic schools. Right. Because what are they doing? Tongues hanging out on the ground, salivating, chasing after the latest educational trends as fast as they can. The so just so they that we were just recording me and my husband the other day, and we literally couldn't post it because we were getting so angry. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, okay, so talk on this, right? What is the Catholic school? Okay, because okay, so we're we're done telling in a sense our own our, our own where we were and so forth. Let's let's bring the faith dimension into this. How can the church help us help us to raise our children? And let's start with the technology thing. What should Catholic schools be doing? Okay, and I, I can't speak for the public schools. If you can't afford to send your kid to a Catholic school, fine. I'm hoping that in the future parishes do things that can help parents send their kids to Catholic schools. But in terms, I mean, we're talking about what the church can do. One of the things they can do in its schools is to do something. But right now they, they chase after the technology 
and they seek all kinds of million dollar grants in order to buy ever more technology. And I guess they think it's a marketing tool. Nobody's going to send their kids to St. Fidget is down the street. If we don't have free iPads to give to all the kids. One, like of the our local, one of our local schools that's not far from us, that's a Catholic school, literally uses as an advertisement that each kindergartner gets a Chromebook. And I was horrified when I got that in the mail. I actually said to Seth, they're using this as a positive selling point. This is so bizarre to me. I would immediately march into the office and say, why in the world does my kindergarten need a Google Chromebook? Yeah, you've just lost my child. I'm removing my child. Maria, what do, what do you, did you send your kids to Catholic school, Maria? Well, they've been all over the place. They've been to Catholic school, homeschooled, public school, and now they attend an Orthodox classical school. <laughs> Oh, my God. Where is that in Allentown? <laughs> it's on um, Bridal Path Road. It's the old. Um, it used to be it's it's owned by the sisters. Um, they had a high school there that they had all girls school and it closed down. Oh, God, goodness, like 30. OK, so it's an alternative kind of school run by alternative people. And that's great. That's cool. That's nice and bohemian. I like that. So what do they do with the technology thing? There is no technology. Yes. Really. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And probably yeah. because is it for ideological reasons or just because they can't afford it? <laughs> no, it's for it's for the, the, the good reasons. Yeah, very good. Nat, what about your kids schools? Yeah, uh, we went to we're on our second Catholic school, our first Catholic school. They all got the Chromebooks and that was very obnoxious to me because each one has different ways of logging in and all. it's like it adds stress they they do it to be more i don't know they say it's to be easier or whatever but it was completely stressful that was during covid times and that was a mess because they had the chromebook and um we just went to a new uh we're at a new catholic school and this one is classical um they just switched over to classical so it's a process of them changing over no none of that no more chromebooks um the the technology it's just smaller uh, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles that the first school does and i could see such a big difference it's very it's really interesting um how it's, it's like simpler it's it's simpler yet there's been so much growth in my kids from that simplicity um that it's just really mind blowing. And I think it has to do with that lack of all the bells and whistles that the other classical classical, I keep saying classical. Um, somebody, yes. school has. somebody used the phrase once, you know, uh, electronic fog. And mm -hmm. I think one of the things that children suffer from today is the fact that this complete saturation of their lives with the digital world, with the online world, is, is so complicating and creates a fog. I have to believe because I sense it in myself. And so I'm going to retroject my own 65 year old feelings back onto the 10 year olds. You, ha you have to, because we're all just big kids, right? You have to think that they, that there's a relief factor when that goes away. Right. Yeah. Do you, do you guys see this in your kids? Like well, at times, like when you're on vacation and maybe for eight hours, nobody's doing anything but riding that water slide at Disney World or what? I hate Disney World, but, you know, uh, you know, 
you know, yeah, like yeah. I, I want to blow up Pinocchio and that stupid small world. Right. Uh, if I had a chance, but I think they demolished the small world. Right. Anyway, didn't they? I don't know. But I wanted to set a b- bomb off in Pinocchio. I hate Disney World. But anyway, I, I <laughs> that's a my former students know that this I is. Feel, a, yeah, I was going to say, I feel like I'm back in class. <laughs> <laughs> my anti Disney rants. But OK, so forget that you go to Disney World and you spend a day riding, you know, water slides and Dumbo rides or whatever it is you do at Disney World these days. All right. Isn't there a happiness that you see in your kids when they don't? Maria, let's start with you, Maria. I mean, obviously, you you have experience where you go on vacation and nobody's got their like iPads with them. Isn't that kind of liberating? Tell me that it is so that I have some hope here. Well, of course. I mean, there's even, you know, doesn't even have to be vacation, just being at the school they're at. My third grader comes and she's comes home with dirt on her, you know, kilts and dirt all over her shoes because they have two recesses and they go on nature walks and she's building a fort yes. around next behind the tree um, wow. during recess, you know, so. I want to go to this school. Right. <laughs> it's 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 amazing. And it's just been the biggest blessing. Show me that dog gummit, you know, show me a kid that doesn't love building a fort. And I don't care if it's girl or boy. She's a nine year old girl. Doesn't love building a fort. You will never have the experience of building a fort. If you're, if your nose is stuck in playing some video game, you know, uh, on a computer or whatever. Are you familiar with the show alone? No, I am not. It's, Really, basically, it's a show where they try to they put people in the wilderness and have them learn survival. Like they already know survival skills and try to survive. So when when I tell my kids to get off their screens, they're mad at me at first. And then they go outside and they play alone (laughs) together and build big, big fires. And like and I'm just laughing because there is a sense of like, okay, we're doing something right, because they're still kids and they're still having imagination and they're. Like, like and same my kids go to <laughs> a school with very little no technology really I mean they teach them basic typing skills at some point but it's very um low technology and I really it it's it allows just, kids to be kids for longer it's so mm-hmm. great I mean I when I grew up there was a field across the street from it was just a kind of a wild field I, I don't even know who owned it and we loved to play over there and uh our friends and I my brothers and I one day we decided to build a fort and then we decided we want to live in that fort. And of course I was like, maybe like eight years old. And then of course we needed to eat food. So one of us ran back to one of their houses and stole hot dogs. And then somebody went ran back and stole matches. And so we were able to have a fire and we found some sticks and we had hot dogs, but then we ran out of matches and hot dogs and had to go home. <laughs> so, but so the fantasy bubble of sort of living, that was our version of living alone. Survival was to steal hot dogs and matches from somebody so we could live in the field for eight hours. <laughs> but that's, that's being a kid, right? That's being and, a kid. And, it- and so my worry is that modern kid, but you're giving me hope that maybe modern kids do have this. All right. Now, before, think- Go ahead. No, somebody speak I up. Go gonna, ahead. I was just going to say education in general, I, I, you know, is such a huge topic among moms um, because it's one of our biggest struggles is you want to do right by your, your kid, but there's zero options. Um, for us, there were zero Catholic options um, to send them to. And so being an Orthodox school, the name of the school is Christism Academy. And I, I thought that would be an issue at first, but it has not 
it has actually just strengthened our Catholic faith because it's almost, it's so similar, but a lot of their ancient, you know, because really hasn't changed, right, since since they, they the schism, but it's our tradition too um, that I think we have lost a lot of. Um, I don't, I've just lost my train of thought I was going with education. Oh, but the point of education is not to spit out, okay, you're going to be a, computer tech you're going to be a nurse okay so go make money and yeah and live life on the side um these schools like the purpose of education and the perfect of, uh, purpose of schooling is supposed to help the child develop what their god-given gift is nurture that help it grow and then send them out uh yeah. you know to to society not standardize them so that everyone has this score and that score, that doesn't even yeah. make any sense. Oh boy, it sure doesn't. And oh, I, I God, there's so many things I could say in response to that. But we're, we're like at an hour and ten minutes here. We're not. There's so many more things I want to talk about. But the bottom line is, it seems to me what 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 we're saying here in this segment on, you know, kids being kids and technology and education is we want we want a better support system, especially from our church and from our Catholic schools. You're you've got you're going to the Orthodox school. You've got the classical school, and now uh, Nat's got a different school. She's saying it's, it's it's it seems like you want schools that are going to be more supportive of a kind of return to a sort of natural childhood, devoid of this electronic fog. Not that they don't ever use electronics, but kind of devoid of of most of the burden of this electronic fog. And I think that's kind of a a takeaway and I don't want to short circuit the conversation, but I, I do, I do want to move on a bit. And now I just kind of lost my train of thought. Cause when you were talking, there was, Oh, I know what it is. So I know each one of you personally, and I know that each one of you are very, very educated and intelligent young, uh, young women. You're now very much adults to me. You're always be kids. Right. But and, and I say that not in a patronizing way at all. That's why I select you to be on this show because you are very, you, you're accomplished in your own way. You each have like, like Natalie is a beautiful singer and, and, and musician and so on. I, I wonder how important it is as a Catholic mother, specifically let's forget just natural mother, but Catholic mother to in a sense, not lose your own vocation beyond motherhood. In life. In other words, to I know, for example, my own mother was when she was a young woman, a brilliant dancer and a, a wonderful dancer, did tours with dancing troops and so forth. Then she got married and had kids and she stopped dancing. And to this day, as an 87 year old woman, she regrets that that part of her life died. And she actually thinks it would have been better for her children had that part of her life not died that that talent and that skill and that love and that passion that she had had not been completely sublimated by the standard mores of what a mother was supposed to do in the 1960s uh, sort of killed that dream. So I, I, I posed that question to the three of you, knowing how intelligent and gifted the three of you are in your own right as person, how important do you think as a parent, as a mother, is it to actually also then, to be, in a sense, for your children and for the sake of your motherhood, something more than a mother, something vocationally oriented specifically to you by God, 
that is in a sense not simply directly related to how you raise your kids. And Amanda, can we can we start with you? Sure. Um, first of all, that made me feel guilty. You know, <laughs> one, of the, <laughs> one of the first things when I went in experiencing postpartum anxiety and depression, they asked, you know, and when I started therapy, actually, is what when have you done something for you? And it was like crickets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and even yeah. you asking that, I literally had to sit here and think like, okay, Natalie's super gifted with music. I know she's kept that in her life. Like, what is my thing? <laughs> um, Honestly, I enjoy theology a lot. Um, that's part of the reason Seth and I decided to start our podcast, which has died for a while because life got crazy. But um, podcasts have a way of doing that. Trust me. Yeah. Um, and I do enjoy painting. And I will say that the times that I have noticed just like becoming very isolated or depressed or whatever that I kind of force myself, okay, I need to do something creative or something for me. Um I do feel like I am a better mother, but there's this weird, it's this weird fight because you've got the culture saying you should just do things for yourself and self-care and all of this. And then you have the church where um, I at least feel constantly like I have to give everything to my children. And, you know, the, the whole idea of like a mother, like this is my body on one side, but giving your body almost like Eucharistically, on the other church side. So it's kind of this battle of yeah. taking time for you, but not like too much time. But I will say that, yes, when I take time to do something that I'm passionate about, I think it is good for your kids to see you being passionate about something other than packing them school lunches. Or well, that's whatever. my point. You know, I'm not asking, you know, oh, we all have to be virtuosos or something. And I didn't certainly didn't make you feel guilty. But I do remember, Amanda, that you were a brilliant theology student, exceptionally gifted theology student. And that doesn't mean you had to go on for a master's and a PhD and become a theology professor. Uh, But you meant you yourself brought up your interest in theology and so on. And it could be something as simple as that. That's kind of what I'm asking here Um, to have that aspect of you, something you truly love and enjoy to not die, that you just not allow that part of you to die. Um, and I wonder, and I, I'm not making any conclusions from this. I'm just thinking out loud about, you know, the, how important I think it is for parents to, in a sense, retain their own personalities to be who they are as well. And this is not at all buying into a secular agenda of saying, you've got to be a separate person from, you No, no, your primary vocation is to be a mother. Absolutely. Uh, but I'm just wondering within that vocation, if there aren't sub vocations and so on. But anyway, Natalie, you, you actually do, you've continued on with your singing, right? Yeah. So I took a break, um, for a while there, um, and actually had like lost a lot of the skill or whatever, just weakness in the, and when you don't use your instrument, like it gathers dust. So, I don't remember what it was, but I think around, uh, I want to say probably, how old's my youngest is six, so like seven or eight years, maybe, I got back into it, Um, and it was really, really healthy to get back into it. Um, I just recently started cantering at church again, and I've been finding that very healing in a lot of ways, to get back into something that is a gifting from God and 
knowing I'm supposed to use that gifting. Um, and yeah, it, so it's, it's been healing in a lot of ways. Um, and I can, I can see how it's really aided me in a lot of ways. Because, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. You need to like model to your children what it's like to live out your vocation. So like they need to see you using your skills. They need to see you. Um, I have written here. I was just taking notes when Amanda was talking. Cause she was just like, I was just thinking of a lot of these things and just like, even with your marriage, like living out your marriage as that comes first, like my kids yeah. know when, when we want to go to bed and we want to spend time together, you're not invited to that time. Like <laughs> setting down that, that law of like, this is your time. You guys can like read together. You could play a game. Like this is our time together and you need to respect that. Um, doing date nights. Like right now, my kids are at home. Um, my, my boys take care of the girls. And um, so we went out on a date night and I'm here able to do this podcast because we've instilled that in them to respect our authority and respect our vocation of marriage um, and live that that's out for, as a model. Um, so I think that's really important for parents is to not lose, like it doesn't become all about the kids. Like it is about you as, as a married unit and raising your kids as I think that's just really important because you can lose sight of that too. Um, oh, very true. And Amanda, I just thought of something. You and Seth need to start a communio study circle in your home. That's what you need to do. We have talked about that so many times, actually. And we really need to, we kind of had yes. like a little, we didn't start with communio because we had to kind of like ease people into that. Well, that's fine. <laughs> hey, yes. I'll come up. You started, I'll, I'll come up for one. Carrie and I'll oh, come that'd up be great. Yeah. Anyway, Maria. Over to you. I don't have one. I was a teacher before I um, had kids. And to be honest, I don't, I wouldn't ever want to go back into um, that after yeah. or anything. But uh, I think more just for me for the past, you know, we've been married 16 years, I think. Natalie, how long? No, not 16. How many? 15. Are we 15? <laughs> Yeah, I'm the same as you because I think we're only a week apart. Oh, okay then. Yeah, Is it yeah, 15? Okay. So you two know each other, by the way. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Amanda, do you know Maria? I do because yeah. partially through John Gribowich, her Emma and my Emma are his goddaughters. Okay, yeah. so here I've been presuming all evening that Maria didn't know these people. Anyway. Um, and I, before you go on, Maria, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not trying to drive a wedge between <laughs> your vocation as mothers and like, oh, I could have been a contender. I could have been something. No, I'm not trying to yeah. say that. I'm just trying to say how important I think it is for your children to see you as real persons and to see you enjoying something, to see you happy, to see you. And it doesn't have to be some great skill or something. Just like I'm a teacher. I'm a singer. I'm a I'm a theologian. Just see you being yourself. And, exactly. and happy and doing it. So anyway, go ahead, Maria. And and so I was going to say that it's more for, for me, it's more so been just what life is doing around me. Um, just kind of the whole, letting the Holy Spirit guide. And he's not disappointed me. I, I had a lot of fun, just opportunities. And I mean, something, you know, as silly as direct sales and, 
it was just for, it was just came on my plate. It was fun. I did it. I mean, you know, it was just something to do and it was made me happy and the kids got a kick out of it too. And, um, just going through life experiences, being a part of some nonprofits, I, you know, I'm sure we've, we've had a couple miscarriages ourselves. So that kind of put me into a nonprofit with our OB that's helping out, um, moms who, you know, have a poor prenatal diagnosis and getting involved in that, just letting the Holy Spirit drive what fun stuff we do, but making, and the kids do, you know, it's, it's separate from them. They know I have my own time to do different things, but it's not one particular thing that I've kind of delved into myself. Yeah. My poor daughter had to put up with Carrie and I having endless, endless theology major parties at uh, not just the communio parties study circles but the patio parties with students coming over and stuff but she enjoyed it she she had fun i think but anyway okay we've been at this about an hour and 22 minutes and i i I hope i can beg upon your patience both yours and my listeners because i do before i get out of here i do want to do a little round robin here and maybe we could even do a part two to this i want to discuss uh, how this has affected your faith. Because I know that, I mean, you are all faith-filled people, you know, in college and so on. Uh, and when we have faith in college, it's always filled with all this youthful idealism. But then, you know, the rubber hits the road and you have kids and you're married and you have to pay bills uh, and you have to exist within the boredom of a typical bourgeois suburban parish. Uh, so how how has parenthood and just family life changed your faith life if it has at all amanda let's start with you you're stunned or is she froze is there oh, oh she's froze. Froze up. oh she's not stunned she's <laughs> she, she, <laughs> she's, she's not gone. oh she is she's like stunned. the dead parrot sketch on muddy python oh, he's no. not dead he's merely pining all right pining for the fjords all right. So, yeah. So we lost Amanda. Maybe she'll come back. Natalie, well, same question. Maybe that's a sign from God that we're supposed to end now. But I, I do want to get <laughs> at least uh, maybe a teaser for part two in here. Uh, Nat, you go ahead. Uh, it's definitely given me a different perspective. Um, just I've been rooted in my faith a lot. Um, I, I was actually having a conversation with my very faithful girlfriends that I hang out with and talk to on a daily basis. Or I was like, I wonder if we would have been friends back in high school because parenting is it's really like a, a boot camp of craziness that you go through and it gives you this different perspective. So you're living in this this faith, but you're not necessarily called to experience it the same way. Um, but there's this deepening and this, the, this, mm-hmm. there's suffering, but there's also joy. And um, I, I just never anticipated how aggravating being an adult was going to be. Um, <laughs> and just like this, I just, looking oh, back that's on the my, line of my, the night. Yeah, really. I say that all the time. Like I really underestimated how irritating it is to be an adult. Tom and I always are joking about adulting. And um, and I think there's something to be said about that. Like we are, like you you mentioned, we're all big kids, but we know that we're supposed to have that childlike, um, that childlike wonder and that childlike joy of that kids have. And 
everything being an adult, it just goes against that sometimes. And um, so I've just, I've just had a, a, a new perspective that has uh, deepened my faith. Um, I am more understanding than I used to be of a lot of people um, that have like left the church or yeah. really struggle with their faith. Like in the past, I would be like, what the heck is wrong with you? How can you live your life without Jesus? You know, but <laughs> now it's like, oh my gosh, like I can connect with people on a deeper level from that boot camp of suffering where God knows I haven't suffered as bad as half the people on this planet. But there it, it just opens yeah. your eyes to a new perspective, I guess. Or there is so much packed in there. That is so true. I love your phrase, the boot camp of suffering, and as well as the aggravation of being an adult. I remember my mother would say to me when we were kids, you enjoy being a kid now because you won't have any fun when you're adults. Let me tell you. And that was her way of saying the same thing, right? It's aggravating being an adult. She was right. You know, you're better off being a kid. But anyway, Maria, you're kind of going to get the last word because we really do probably, I kind of think, I wonder if Amanda didn't have a version of Zoom that cut her off. She said her, her, her computer died out of nowhere and she's trying to come back is what she said. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll see her before the end. So Maria, go ahead. Okay. So Catholic. Okay. So when I first, I came in really into the, I was cradle Catholic, but came into faith during the charismatic renewal. And that's where I kind of, so Mm -hmm. my faith started, you know, the way I worshiped would be, you know, never a quiet moment. Um, It would just be praise and worship music. I love prayer groups and all that kind of stuff. Um, Looking back on that, it's, you know, I hated that shit, by the way, I, I absolutely hated that shit. And I'm just going to say the word shit right here freely. I say this now all the time on my podcast. I use that word, but I hated that stuff. Anyway, go ahead. You know, and I look back and I think, wow, that's that was that was interesting. And um, I don't long for that. Right. And in a good way. I mean, there's that was good because it it for sure strengthened my faith. Uh, but recently I find as we as I went through is I long for contemplation. I long for silence um yeah uh, and that has deepened my faith and made it a lot more real and like natalie said to having a lot of more empathy for those kind of who pulled away from the church uh because i think we can all agree that it's really hard to be in the church uh so uh, just taking that time every single day to be silent uh and really diving into this, the whole idea of contemplation. Wow. That is so true. And I think that's true of both Catholic mothers and fathers and single people and just about everybody who's aggravated by being an adult. (laughs) I love that line, Nat. I'm going to steal it from you. (laughs) Uh, The contemplation and silence. God, does the church provide us with enough opportunity? You know, you know, sometimes you just hate people. The church needs to be doing this and the church needs to be doing that. If I were a priest these days, I would want to throw out of the next window the next person that walk up to me and said, I think the church should be doing this because, you know, the church can only do so much. But still, I'm going to say the church needs to provide us with more opportunities for contemplation and silence. And uh, quite often it doesn't, I think. Um, but our church doors are open. My parish church, our local uh, parish close by here, their doors are opened, um, 
almost, you know, all during the day. That's just where I just go and sit, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's great if you're within a very, very short distance of your church and they right. have like 24 hour adoration and all that. And you can sort of, I'm, you know, I'm just going to go and sit before the Lord for an hour or whatever. But I also recommend this to Catholic families, Catholic parents all the time. We did this in our own, in our home, which is if you have the space in your home, and even if you don't find, find a space somewhere to have some part of your home that is set aside for silence, contemplation, prayer, even if it's a single icon or statue with a candle in front of it and a chair and maybe a Bible or something like that that this, and then you put up one of those like little partitions behind you or whatever. This is where I go to sort of try to zone out and focus, focus a little bit more on, on the Lord. And I think that was one thing to speak for myself as, as a parent that deepened my faith was the realization that I'm people think, Oh, you're a theologian. You must've been, you know, thinking about God all the time Eh, no, you guys study theology, you know, you know, you know, it means I got to get this book and I got to get that book and I got to footnote this and footnote that and blah, blah, blah. And what did Hegel say about this? Oh my God. And I got to read Heidegger. What the hell's that all about? You know, and, and, and that's, and that's not faith. And one of the things I discovered quickly as a single daddy, especially at, you know, DeSales trying to get tenure and all this uh, to hell with theology. And I had to find a space in my apartment where it was just me and Christ and prayer and so on. Otherwise I would have lost my, my brains. I would have lost my mind. Uh, and my faith changed too, because it, it went from being this very dry, dense theological faith to this Lord Jesus. I swear to God, Lord, I don't ask much. Just return my sanity, would you please, Lord? <laughs> or else I might kill myself <laughs> because I just, you know, I'm not for those I wasn't really suicidal. But you get my point. My prayer was one of desperation, just absolutely laying my heart open, saying, <laughs> Oh my God, <laughs> I'm screwed. Do something about it, would you? And you know, I I've literally prayed that one day to Jesus, Lord, I'm screwed. Do something. It's yours. All right. That's how my faith changed. But anyway, Amanda, you're back. Your computer died and now you're back. So we're discussing. I desperately need a new computer. It was just out of nowhere died. So we're on my phone now. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to end this quickly, but we've all contributed. Uh, you've just heard my contribution. How has being a parent or whatever changed your, your faith life? Yeah, it's funny. I might use that prayer you just days <laughs> my own or jesus i'm screwed lord now help me out would you please <laughs> i don't know why i do that with a southern accent but it, it's helpful i think sometimes i think jesus be, hears southern accents more he does to be completely honest i feel like my prayer life is not that great right now because of being a mom and i know that i need to make more effort because you're busy right because you're busy well, and part of it is, too, I work for the church, and sometimes when you work for the church, everyone just assumes you pray all the time, and it's still a no. job. So when you leave your work, sometimes <laughs> that's bad to say, but it's sometimes, no, sometimes when you work up. for the church, you just have enough God stuff during the course yeah. of a day, and you say, okay. You know. <laughs> if that's what you'd like to call it, God stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm being polite. I've already sworn once you missed it. <laughs> I used the S word a couple of times. So, you know, but yeah, yeah so, let's just put it, say sometimes working for the church doesn't exactly heighten your relationship with God. 
Yes. Or you are begging him to, I don't, I don't know, give you the graces necessary to not kill people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh Lord, I beseech thee, please smite this person in thy mercy. Amen. (laughs) So honestly, my life has been a lot of, you know, the end of the day when you're exhausted, but you have those little God moments where you just say, thank you. That was really good. You know, thanks for these small moments of peace. Um, And, you know, you just, you watching your children grow in the faith is kind of a prayer in itself. Um, And I just, it's really the small, it's the small things. I know that I wish my prayer life was this amazing you know, spending time. Well, let me ask you this. Well, let me ask you this. Do you pray less now that you're a mother than you did before you were a mother? Were you were you a prayer? You know, a, a real it's just different. I think. Like, I don't yeah. really. I can't. I can't. I shouldn't say I can't, but it's not often that I get to sit down and pray a full rosary because you're interrupted twenty seven times and you don't remember where you are. And um, so. I, I want to be able to do that, but it's more so now just little moments of gratitude or those prayers that you shared, like, please, Lord, I need this. I need my kids hey, to stop throwing up or whatever. I'm going to now make a confession on YouTube and podcast to all after four years of blogging. And it is this. I don't like the rosary and <laughs> and 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 I don't say that trying to discourage people from praying. the rosary. I mean, it very personally that I have uh, it's not like oh geez rosary is a bad concept and i reject it no it's i find it unbelievably difficult to pray an entire five decades well that's not even the whole rosary just the five decades i find i get you know halfway through the second decade and, and it's like okay uh can i read something now <laughs> uh how many Hail Marys do I have to say? <laughs> okay, what is it I'm supposed to be? And okay, I, I have to pray a Hail Mary and think on those words at the same time. I'm supposed to be contemplating something else, some mystery or something or other. And uh, I can't do it. And so I usually get halfway through a rosary and say, I'll finish this later. And, and I don't know how many of my viewers and listeners are now saying, oh my God, Dr. Chap doesn't. <laughs> can't get through that's, a rosary but i can't i can't podcast. i just can't now i don't know what so anyway this is trying to be sympathetic with you amanda that when your brain gets cluttered and you're busy and so i'm like i said i'm not anti-rosary i'm just saying it, in that sense maybe the rosary is a good discipline for me or people like you and me where it's it forces you to sit down for at least what 15 minutes you don't have 15 minutes that you can sit down and do this so anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm interrupting. Another, you. I'm sorry. It's fine. No. And, and then another thing I just this came to me as you were talking. So another thing that I've found myself doing a lot, I think I was a more disciplined prayer prior to kids, like saying the rosary and going to adoration and things like that, which are all wonderful. And I wish I had more time for. Um, I think I have found myself relating to um, Mary and the saints in trying <sighs> to join what I'm going through in some sort of way of thinking about what they went through. So, and please tell me if this is heretical, because I hope it's not. <laughs> like, <laughs> please. Oh, let's not bicker about that. With my anxiety, I was thinking, you know, I feel like when in scripture, it says that Mary held all these things in her heart, that could be a way of saying she had some anxiety to a certain extent um, because she was the mother of God. <laughs> and so, yeah. 
to me, just kind of taking a step back and thinking like, I'm not the first person, I'm not the first mom to go through this and to try to kind of use that as a prayer of like, Lord, you know, or Mary, you went through this, please pray for me. Oh, that is so profound. There's a great book by Hans Lewis von Balthasar of all people, of course, called The Christian and Anxiety. It's not a very big book. And he talks about the difference between worldly anxiety and Christian, and he brings up Mary and and the fact that there can be a very sanctified and holy form of anxiety that takes the form of, of deep concern, deep worry about yeah. responsibilities before you. And the worry is not crippling, but nevertheless, it's serious. Uh, and that when Mary pondered these things in her heart, she just, she did so sinlessly, but precisely sinlessly as someone perhaps pondered more deeply than we can, which actually probably troubled her even more. It's like, oh my God, I'm the mother of, you know, Jesus for crying out loud, you know, the, the, the Messiah. So I Had guess be... it's not heretical if Balthazar said it. So hopefully. No, it, it's not heretical. It's not heretical at all. But anyway, okay. Does anybody else want to add anything? I'm, I'm talking way too much now here, all of a sudden at the end. Nat, Maria, do you have any last words, final words before we sign off? No, you know. Oh, my my dog is barking in the background. I don't know. My condenser mic might be getting rid of the sound, but there he is. But anyway, well, thank thank you guys so much. We've been I really God, we've been doing this for over an hour and a half. So this is what time is it anyway? Yeah, over by almost an hour and 40 minutes. So this is great. And uh, we might have to do a part two. You guys would be open to part two. Sure. All right. This was Absolutely. the kind of hopefully it won't take us like a whole month to finally arrange. Uh, the viewers don't know. I had to cancel on this twice for various reasons. Uh, but but anyway, hey, thanks so much for joining me, guys. This has been great. And thanks to all my uh, viewers and listeners until we meet again. All right. I'm going to hit stop record. Bye, everyone. <laughs>